It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Well, some people like to dismiss slavery like it was nothing. But you see, slavery, it can never be forgotten. Some people not gonna like what me say. But me, I go say it anyway. We are gonna talk about slavery and the effects of it today. Some people just don't wanna know about 400 years ago. But the thing about slavery, it's affecting people now. I tell you no lie. When I see a film about slavery, Peace. And welcome to the Abolitionist Daily. It's a daily program that is a direct offshoot of sister program to the New Abolitionist Radio regular weekly program here on the Black Talk Radio Network. I'm your host, Johan and Elia. Today is March 20th, 2015. And we will be continuing in our series of news and information and stories and and whipping up a frenzy around the idea of pursuing RICO charges against somebody in this operation, whether it be the municipalities, the the, the, the judiciaries, law enforcement itself, uh, these private probation companies, private prison slavers. We've been on a tear here over the last week or so, close to two weeks since um, the Department of Justice report came out on Ferguson and laid out for us what I still consider to be a template for us to put up against every city in America and put them to the test to prove that they are not operating in a continuing criminal conspiracy to extort money from the citizens and we've laid out the case uh we we got in depth on one particular state alabama yesterday but we've discussed the top 15 states over the last week here we've been discussing uh several different reports from established um, law civil rights advocacy organizations um quite a bit of information from the Brennan Center for Law, um, various court oversight organizations that are out here. We've looked at uh, cases that have already been brought before local courts, discussing the the criminality involved in, in pushing people beyond their limits with fees and fines and interest rates and all sorts of, of monies being attached to very small amounts that they're originally fined for traffic violations or 
civil code violations. We talked about in Ferguson how they were writing people up for the grass being too tall. And then those fines, the grass being too tall, ticket turns into a couple thousand dollars over five years and, you know, 60 days total spent in jail and all this type of stuff. I mean, this is a regular thing. So we're going to uh, continue on in that vein because, I mean, it should be pretty clear we're nowhere near even reaching the tip of the iceberg on how big and how wide and how prevalent this problem really is in America. And I tend to believe that until we take this time to really dig into this and give you more and more specific names, put faces on this problem, introduce you to individuals that have had to deal with this uh, situation, show you how it's going crazy around our country, running rampant. I think it's going to be something that most people are, are going to be uh, conveniently ignoring or overlooking. So what we've been trying to do here is make sure you get some names and locations of these people, real people, ages, ethnicities, their financial backgrounds. Find out whatever we can about the city where they live, the towns they live, the demographics, the, the size of the towns, you know, what's going on. So it can paint a full picture for you to understand that Ferguson is not an anomaly. And I think Eric Holder mentioned that the more and more I research this and the more and more time I spend in this on this frequency, the more I see the coded language that he used in some cases in telling us about what we would find in that report. And if you were listening and if you were looking for something like what we're looking for, he kind of led you to where you need to be looking and, and calling that uh, situation uh, saying that he hoped that it was just an anomaly was almost like a, a like a clue to ensure that we would understand that it's not. And I don't know if we're going to be able to work with him or if he's going to be gone. They haven't approved, uh, they haven't confirmed um, Sister Lynch yet. I don't know if what's going on with with her confirmation, but she should be his replacement or maybe she won't. I don't know. But whoever's in that top position, um, several cities have been investigated. Um there's even a coalition now that's an offshoot of Obama's police, 21st century policing program where they've picked out six cities that they're going to, you know, break them down to the nuts and bolts and, and raise them back up to be good cities with community policing and community involvement. And the people are going to fall in love with the cops again and all this type of thing. But it's really going to be hard to see how something like that can happen because the people aren't upset with the police just arbitrarily just hate cops. In these cities that they named off, I know one for a fact, Stockton, California, the city itself was bankrupt. So it was a very similar situation to what we're seeing. Like we talked about all in the program yesterday, at state of Alabama, several cities throughout Alabama, straight up broke. Ferguson, broke. And this is a quick fix, is to wring the dollars out of the people. So um, like with Stockton, you know, the, the town literally filed bankruptcy. Um, and this is at the height of the time when they're looking to generate revenues however they can. They need their cash flow. They need their spending money to do what they need to do for their daily operations. And so here comes the tax man dressed with a blue suit and a badge. 
and his boss wears a black robe and carries a gavel. And when you can't pay them, they send in, in some cases, outside firms that can call and harass you like regular bill collectors, collections agencies. And they follow a completely different set of laws for how they can go about and get, get their money. And how often they can call and how much they can threaten you with. And But the thing about the difference between these types of probation collection agencies around the country is that typically, unlike a debt collector, they have the authority given to them by the court to recommend a warrant be issued for your arrest if you don't pay. And so this is the tie-in directly to the prison pipeline. Directly, we've had estimates as high as 80%. Generally, it hovers somewhere between 65 to 70% of people who are incarcerated in America currently. They are there for nonviolent, often drug-related, victimless, quality-of-life type violations. Prohibition plays a huge role in this. And on some other programs, we'll go back to talking about the drug, the war on drugs and how that's perceived as being one of the greatest contributors to the 2.3 plus million people currently incarcerated. But right now we're looking at another feeder. And that's people going in there, in and out, in and out, getting caught up, spending years of their lives, losing their jobs, losing their licenses, losing their homes, losing their families, losing their lives behind what could originally be a speeding ticket, uh, a broken taillight, a window tents too dark, whatever it takes to create probable cause, as they say, for the officer. So he can pull you over and then give you this fine, give you this ticket, and start your journey from $100 to $500 for fees and fines and extra fines. And if you can't pay all of that, then now payments. And just to give you the payments, well, there's a special one-time payment because we gave you the payment system. And then there's extra court fees. And then there's a public defender fee. And then there's a prosecutor's fee. And then when we come back and get you, because now you're up to about $1,800, $2,000 you owe off that $100 ticket, and you can't pay it all off when we call you to say pay it all today or you go to jail, well, now you're going to jail. And then you'll pay a daily fee for the time we keep you in jail. And if this doesn't end, if you can't magically get yourself out of it, it can lead to prison. In a lot of cases, it leads to people ending up in state prisons. And once you're convicted of a crime, they've already told you, according to the 13th Amendment, that you can be made a slave. This is America. We legislated slavery here. We didn't abolish slavery. We we made it a, a state institution. And in, with respect to Ferguson specifically, and how that report was designed to ferret out and find out about if there was any type of racial motivation behind what was going on. Let me remind you of a statement that we carry very close to the chest here on this program as part of the abolitionist movement. Um, something that was told to me by uh, Elder uh, Robert Robertson, himself an author of uh, 
books about the 13th Amendment and modern day slavery. Um, very wise elder who has, who has imparted quite a bit of knowledge to me and information about the abolitionist movement and stands steadfast. Even in his so-called retirement years, he still works harder in the movement than, uh, a lot of people, you know, uh, not even half his age. So, um, as he says so eloquently, this all stems from the 13th Amendment. And what we're talking about today, we're going to talk about the uh, school to prison pipeline again, another another angle of looking at that. Um, and the fact of the matter being that the United States and the country of Somalia are the only two countries in the world that have yet to ratify the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which is an international treaty that was designed to protect children's rights. And we already know that the United States could give a damn about international treaties they sign, about following any of the things that they say they're going to do when they go to the UN and they talk with all their buddies and they have their summits and they send their envoys and ambassadors and they make all this pomp and circumstance about whatever. But And then when they turn around and go back to the UN and call out countries like Libya, call out countries like Somalia, Yemen, Mali, and tell these people that we need to send in troops, Nigeria. We need to set up bases. We need to have drone bases built there. We need AFRICOM, boots on the ground. We need to destabilize their funds, sanctions against Russia. We need to make sure they don't get a nuclear bomb constantly bugging out about Iran who has never attacked anyone in any in 2000 years I mean I don't know how long it's been for real but I mean a thousand years since they've even been bothered with attacking anyone but we stay on them like like they're somewhere near as violent as the United States is who has been literally at war in some way or another almost for its entire life as a country we currently have 130 plus conflicts we're engaged in. None of them legally declared wars, but all of them using our military machine in a war effort, in occupying effort, in a training and support effort to support wars that countries are fighting. That we've got no international justification to do so, no legal justification to do so. So saying all that to say, this is yet another treaty that's in place, the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And the U.S. is likely never going to ratify it because it bans the option for lifelong prison sentences. And if you think about how sick that is, the United States is not going to sign this treaty. They're going to try to tell the truth for once and say, well, we're not going to sign something that says we can't give kids life life in prison sentences because that's something that we're going to continue to do is give children life in prison. So we're going to talk about that and the school-to-prison pipeline overall. Again, we've got a couple of different angles to look at it from. We got real heavy on the schools and suspension rates and uh, discipline disparities and, and that type of thing when we discussed it before, and I think it really did peel back some eyes, had some people you know, had to, had to peel them off the roof when they could hear these kind of numbers. Um, 
it revealed quite a bit to me, you know, and I visit that podcast uh, from time to time, just going over that information because it's a lot to take in. But we're going to look at um, the costs that this brings us of what we're doing. According to the Justice Policy Institute, uh, recently released new findings estimate that personal, social, and emotional costs of incarcerating youth is costing our communities anywhere from $8 billion up to possibly $20 billion a year. And we just never seem to find that kind of money for education. The next big bubble, like the subprime bubble, that burst a few years back and wrecked the economy again, housing bubbles, the next big bubble is the student loan bubble. It's far worse than the housing bubble. Far, far worse. Because we have a culture now where everybody's paying for degrees and hoping that's going to be the key to getting a job that they can live a, a decent life with. You need a degree to get in the door for $30,000 a year nowadays, 25000 a year. And you can't really live off of $25,000 a year, just to be honest. I mean, you have to live in a pretty poor or particularly rural area. You might be able to put a trailer out on some land somewhere and drive your old cash pickup truck or whatever back and forth down the dirt road to get to your $25,000 a year job and pretty much mind your business, wear the same jeans and tennis shoes for the next 10 years or whatever. You could probably survive off of it. But for the most part, people need a little more than that to live. And it takes a uh, college degree or maybe several nowadays to really even get your foot in the door and get those in, get those interviews. But for some reason, we keep putting people in debt to to buy those degrees, and there still is a huge number of people in this country looking for work. And we just never find the money to help with these situations. But we do get the money to incarcerate our children. Anywhere from eight to up to twenty billion dollars a year. We hear this state to state, the hundred and fifty thousand dollar year estimate of keeping a person incarcerated. The immigrant detention situation we discussed. There's a number of flat one hundred and nine thousand dollars per year on their head. Because of what the rate is per day. It's a hundred and nine thousand dollars a year. For a hundred and nine thousand dollars a year for each child that needed education, these kids could be going to Harvard. So we're going to look into that a little more deeply today also and looking at why these campuses are drawing in so much money. We'll look at the suspension rates again and other, you know, crazy uh, statistics. And we'll even take a look at school officials who are actually learning police-styled interrogation tactics. So they can work on these kids and get confessions out of children. I mean, it's, we got some problems going on. And the thing is, what I was about to uh, go back into about one of, one of the, the declarations, abolitionist declarations that I like to study and keep close to heart because it keeps things so honest and so true is that all of this stems from the 13th Amendment. And the exception clause found therein. The police are the primary enforcers of the exception 
in the 13th Amendment. So when we talk about these punitive municipal fines and, and city codes and all this foolishness, that we talk about Ferguson going from $1 million in, 10, in 2010 to three over $3 million in 2014 in revenues that they brought in just off of writing those tickets. This is what we're talking about, is the police enforcing the 13th Amendment. They are driving people to the slave plantations. It's just a matter of fact. It's not my opinion. This is what's been going on. They're the primary enforcers of that 13th, and that's their primary job. The people that the 13th Amendment was intended for, however, are African people in America. That's why we call it a reconstructive amendment, because the purpose of it is to repair or restore or reconstruct the lives that were damaged by the inhumanity of slavery. The exception was placed into the 13th Amendment for the intention to specifically re-enslave those freed Africans. It was intended specifically for African people and it has impacted mainly African people today. Africans in America have been criminalized ever since their enslavement. You cannot dispute that. Ever since the first slave ships took off from Africa, the whole point of it was that it could be done, it could be justified with the scapegoat of those Africans somehow being evil, somehow being savages. They must have been prisoners of war. They're backwards. They're in the black, dark continent of darkness, and they need enlightenment. They don't serve, they don't worship the right God. They're cannibals. And on and on and on, justifying their persecution. That's been the plan from the start. And do you notice how that's what's going on right now? If you look around, that's what's happening now. If you lived in the times of the 1600s and then showing up with hundreds and hundreds of these black people, you never seen a black person and you see these people and the word on the street is, well, they're savages. Oh, okay. And then you go on about your business. 1700s. They've been in the country now for 80, 90 years or so. You've been seeing these Negroes, you've been seeing them out on fields and working in, you know, subjugated positions and whatnot. You know what the deal is. These are slaves. This is the low class. This is the bottom. So anybody that asks that comes new to the country that doesn't know what's going on, that's the, that's the Africans. That's the slaves. Yeah. They're, they're horrible. They stink. They don't speak English. They're not educated. And on and on and on. 1800s. It's a worldwide operation at this point. Well known what the deal is, what's going on. You had a hundred plus years of these people trying to escape, fighting back, resisting, going to the courts, fighting for their freedom, taking up arms. The abolitionist movement has begun. You know about resistance to what's happening. And what do you hear said about the people, even as they're fighting for their freedom? They're savages. 
They're uneducated. They're ignorant. They're evil. They stink. They work hard, but they don't, they're not very smart. Their brains are totally different than our brains. And on and on and on. So the same thing, justifying the savagery, the scapegoat mentality. Creating a place in your mind for cognitive dissonance. Making it where the thing that you see, that you realize is so absurd and doesn't make any sense, you have to justify that for yourself so your brain can wrap itself around what you're doing to the people. Come forward into the 1900s in the Jim Crow era. The convict leasing era. The debt peonage era. The hardcore lynching eras. Because lynchings on plantations was one thing, but now these people are supposed to be free. So walking parallel to railroad tracks or making eye contact with a white person or just looking suspicious in general will get you lynched. And that was often by the local police. And not just the Africans, but white people that tried to help Africans or just even that were not willing to say as evil things about Africans as some others, like we've discussed on the New Abolitionist radio program, one of our abolitionists in profile, Reverend Anthony Bewley. He was a preacher, and he just simply did not go along with a church, a particular part of church doctrine, which allowed for slavery and, and said that it was going to be okay if they kept enslaving people. That's all. He didn't advocate for Negroes necessarily. He just didn't demonize them. And he got ran out of his Texas town. He got ran all the way up to Missouri trying to get away. And they caught him and they brought him back and they hung him. They hung him and they left him dangling. And then they buried him and then they dug him back up. And then they pulled all his skin off his bones and they hung his skeleton up. And little children in the town used to come and play with his skeleton's bones. This is the reality, people, of what this country is about and what it has been about for hundreds of years. And this 13th Amendment, when they put that in place, just made it state institutionalized. Instead of being freestyle, it became a true system. So that system that's in place right now justifies the inhumanity, justifies the criminalization. And even after emancipation, it justifies re-enslaving them, black people, through black codes, which in a lot of cases are still black codes out there today. It's all legislation. That's where our persecution is coming from, from the appropriate legislation of Section 2 of the 13th Amendment, except when a person can be convicted of a crime. It's from legislation that communities become ghettos. Every African community across America, every city in America, represented by Africans, are being and have been slated for political deprivation, economic disadvantage, social, national disparagement, and white supremacist institutional discrimination. One solution for all of this is the same as it ever has been, and that is the abolition of slavery. Let me give you the 13th right quick, and then we'll take our first break. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution declares that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude 
except as a punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So mass incarceration and subsequent prison labor for slave wages is not the new Jim Crow. It's just the same old slavery. You are listening to the Abolitionist Daily. This is Johan and Elia. This is the Black Talk Radio Network, and we will be right back. are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. And we are back. This is the Abolitionist Daily. This is Johan and Elia, and this is the Black Talk Radio Network. Let me give you the line, the phone line to call in in case you have questions or concerns or you just want to add some commentary to what we're discussing today, we'll be discussing the school to prison pipeline from a little bit different angle. Um, and then we're also going to return to our discussion about Ferguson, America and the proliferation of uh, probation collection agencies and extortion rackets being run by municipalities and judiciaries around this country and driving people into jails and prisons behind debt owed for uh, fees and interest rates and just all that crazy stuff going on so anyway the number here is 712-775-7035 the access code is 367526 pound hit star six and then one and you will be on the air with us to share your questions or concerns so before the break we were discussing the 13th amendment and what it what it is designed to do, who it's designed to to go after, and it's really difficult for a person to argue against that because you look at the prison situation in America, you look at the criminalization, you look at the policing numbers, you look at you know pretty much every place in America, whether it's whether it's uh, Ferguson with a with a large percentage of blacks living there, or whether it's you know little nowhereville towns in in the state of Iowa somewhere where there's hardly any blacks at all. You see state to state to state, pretty much every state. And we've looked at these numbers. And oddly enough, I discussed with Max Parthas just the other day, we featured a chart on a, a, on a website link on New Abolitionist Radio last year, 2014. I want to say it was somewhere around the spring where we had a, a, a the statistics for state to state ratios of blacks in the population and then ratios of blacks incarcerated in the state. And even knowing what we know and knowing what we study every day and being pretty well schooled on all of this and, and, and I don't want to say callous because we still feel, but we feel like we've seen quite a bit and we don't, get surprised at anything, but those numbers were shocking. Don't quote me on these numbers as though they are are exact because I don't I don't have it in front of me. And oddly enough that website disappeared. That link disappeared in the weeks after the program. Um I continued to try to visit it and try to figure out what was going on and find out the source of the information and go around through back doors and other channels to 
access that same info to to continue to you know uh, reference that. But the uh, website link that we had originally, it uh it ended up leading to some Chinese <laughs> cartoon I don't know anime website or something. It, the link was corrupted and and redirected. Um, so that information kind of went away, but it's still out there and we'll find that again and present it to you here in the, in the near future. But the numbers were outstanding. Like places like New Hampshire, you know, 6% black population, 46% prison population, Iowa, 12% black population, 63% black population, Utah, 3% black population, 47%. You know, I mean, it was just all 50 states, just ridiculous numbers of, how these people state to state, that's what's going on. So, I mean, when we see that, when we see the stats look that way, that's where that 13 comes into play. And it seems very obvious that there's got to be some truth to what's being said, because you can't show any other correlation between numbers and people and race and, and specific behaviors, whether you're centering it around criminality or whether you're talking about drug use, alcohol use, sexuality, saving money, whatever, it's very difficult to to group numbers of people in the same manner as you can around the prison situation and black people. It's just going to be hard for you to do. Everybody's an individual when you're talking about everything else. Everybody is is their own kind of person, and yeah, there's some tendencies, but you can't quite pin everybody down. You can't put everybody in a group in a, you can't label them because just because this person does this doesn't mean they do, you know, so everybody's got their own little categories for everything else. But when it comes to criminality, for some reason, when it comes to criminality, black folks are just accepted uniformly across the nation is all being somehow interested in or affiliated with or justifiably caught up in the criminal justice system. And it doesn't raise much of an uproar. And it exceeds all the way down to our children in schools, black children all the way down to preschool, to preschool. Black children are 48% of the children that are suspended in preschools. And it just keeps going up and up and up from there on up till graduation and whoever doesn't even graduate. And then the numbers of those people that go to prison and it just continues to be just a a matter of fact type of situation. So it would seem to me that people would take that as being a problem as we have some sort of an issue. It would seem that that would be something that would cause alarm for people. But in America, it's very common. And then when we see reports like what came out of Ferguson, it's not a big deal. Doesn't raise a lot of feathers when you see. I mean, this should be a prime time for all of our non-black allies to be jumping on board like they haven't before. We've got a federal government report proving racial bias, racism, proving that it's real for all of these post-racial people. For all of the commentary we heard before the report came out about 
Eric, uh, Eric Garner's death, Michael Brown's death, Makai Gurley's death, John Crawford's death, Tamir Rice's death, Sharice Mitchell's death, and on and on and on. All these people that have been killed by police. When we have this conversation and you dare say that it had anything to do with their race, all of our white allies, well, I won't say all, there's some that are, that are rooted in reality. But for the most part, you hear people that want to ally themselves with the peace movement. Want to be a part of saying they're, they're involved with pursuing righteousness in communities and healing and moving America forward. These type of white people tend to be telling us that we're post-racial. And that if you even say that these people are black, are you bringing this up? Well, then you're introducing race into the, your race had nothing to do with it. Meanwhile, we have white men attacking the police barracks, the state police barracks in Pennsylvania and going out into the woods and hiding out and waiting for the police, taking shots at them while they chase them. And they make it in custody alive, known to be armed and dangerous, known to be in, involved in a, in a national manhunt with all of our police agencies on the lookout. Known to be a threat to the general public, having already shot and killed members of law enforcement. Brought in alive. The mall shooters, the movie theater shooters. Here recently there was another guy, I don't remember his name, I just saw the story kind of flash through, but Another white guy shot and killed one person, wounded five other people, went on a rampage through the city, brought him in alive. But for some reason, our people, black people, Latino people, get uh, about, oh, 10, 15 seconds, maybe. What did Tamir Rice get? Uh, less than 10 seconds from the time the police bum-rushed him, a little kid in a park? How long did John Crawford get when the security footage showed? Two seconds, five seconds. It wasn't even five seconds. For when the cops came storming around the corner, he had his head on his shoulder on his cell phone. You could see that pretty obviously that he was talking on a cell phone, not even paying attention to anybody around him. There was nothing threatening about his stance in the least. Cops came in, lit him up. No questions asked. And again, and again, and again. So it just would seem to me that we would pay a little bit closer attention to the fact that race is a factor and that we're not post-racial. And when you can look at these numbers going back to preschool, all the way through schools, elementary, high school, people that even make it to college. Because a huge number of people that don't go to college end up in prison. A huge number of people that don't graduate high school end up in prisons. And in 2012... My sister state, Missouri, I'm from Kansas, but I mean, Kansas City is right there next to each other. So we're all basically the same place. Had the dubious distinction of having the largest crack versus powder cocaine sentencing disparity in the country. 
Spirity had long been targeted by civil rights activists because crack defendants, most of them African-American, face 75 times longer sentences for uh, possessing the same amount of cocaine as mostly white, wealthier defendants caught with powdered coke. And that wasn't the only big difference. And that wasn't the only problem they had. They are also discussing changing the laws around racial disparities in the schools, urging the representatives to make some changes to how we're raising up our children. And they led in talking about the, the, the crack disparities, but they also went into talking about the education and seeing some of the things that are feeding the prison system. So that was in 2012, but now fast forward 2014, state of Missouri has another worst in the nation. Black children are more likely to be suspended from elementary school than in any other state in the nation. And that's according to a report issued from the Center for Civil Rights Remedies at UCLA. So Missouri now, which includes Ferguson, you know, that's why I'm talking about it. Ferguson is, is Ferguson, Missouri. And when you talk about having the number one position in prison sentencing and the number one position in school suspensions and both affect blacks overwhelmingly so. This is the core of our issues. This is what's really going on to create the 2.3 million number that we know dominates all of the headlines and they call it Missouri is an exhibit A. It says, in what civil rights activists call the school-to-prison pipeline for young African Americans. Nationally, and particularly in Missouri, it works like this. Black students are more likely to be suspended when they are uh, young for minor offenses that wouldn't lead to suspension for white students. One suspension leads to another, which often ends up with a student on the street getting in trouble. In the St. Louis region, those young black students on the street are at a much higher risk for getting pulled over by police for simply walking down the street. As the DOJ report in Ferguson told us in one explicit story after another, in Missouri, the disparities start young and continue all the way to prison. It's a travesty that explains as much as any other factor, and there are many, poverty being the biggest one, why too many black men who are nonviolent offenders crowd state prisons. The UCLA study found that in Missouri, 14.3% of black students in elementary school were suspended at least once in the 2011-2012 school year, compared to 1.8% of white children. The 12.5% disparity is twice the national average. I, I, I don't know how to argue this for people that don't want to believe it or don't want to see it. And I'm willing to accept that I'm a, I'm a black man, I'm a black father, so I'm probably a little biased not towards black children over white children or any other race of children, but towards believing that black children are not any more criminal or not any more mischievous or not any more disruptive or not any more unreachable by any other means than suspending them. See, that pisses me off when that's, when, when we give our children the brunt of the thing at such an early age and treat them like that. Now, I came up in elementary school. I was one of only two black kids in elementary for a while. I think a third came in eventually. 
I went kindergarten through sixth grade is, you know, always is the only black child in my class, definitely. And I would sometimes see another black kid in the school somewhere, and we weren't necessarily, like, close or automatically made friends because we were the only ones. Each person has to deal with it in their own way. I'm certainly open, but I saw some kids that would show up, try to assimilate, you know, more than I probably was was willing to do. I have a strong family and strong home base, so I was definitely strong in my identity and proud of being a black person. I wasn't, you know, necessarily looking for, for their favor or their acceptance. Although I did have plenty of friends, but I spent a lot of time sitting in the hallway. My teacher told me, all my teachers would tell me all the time until I was at least probably fifth or sixth grade, kindergarten through first through fourth and all that. I was always being told, oh, well, your voice carries so I can hear you talking over the other kids. Well, I just, I know they were probably talking too, but I, I heard you. I saw you. Well, you know what, John? When I looked up, when I saw it, it was you. This kind of thing. And our children don't necessarily know any better when they get in that situation. I deal with it with my son. And I have to remind them, you just focus on making those A grades. And you won't have to worry about being Mr. Popular. They will show you how they really feel about you when you're competing for resources. See, when you bring me C's and a couple D's and you're the most popular funny guy and everybody likes you and you're cool and you get picked on the kickball team and the teacher lets you be an aide or something, you go carry notes to the office or whatever you got to do to screw off during time you should be learning, that's perfectly fine with them. But when you turn around and you keep getting these 100% tests and you keep bringing in these perfect homework assignments and you keep working on these projects and coming back and getting perfect or near perfect scores just let it be a few a after a after a in a row and you're going to see the other side of the situation and he didn't believe me you know first second third grade whatever he, he's a little kid he's trying to fit in but he's in middle school now he he gets it now and he sees it and it, it's disappointing for the children my nephews all around his age and older than him going into high school and they, i've told them the same thing be mindful of the way people treat you in those schools when you are competing for the resources. My oldest nephew, he's a straight-A student. All advanced placement classes, always the high-achieving, looking for something else to get into. And he he commands the respect of those people at that school. He He walks with his chest up. He's a top athlete. He pushes it because he understands what I told him. And he's seen it, and he's told me. I see what you mean. They do kind of get nasty when you go up and get your test back and it's 100 and theirs is a 91. This is just the reality, people. So when you see these teachers are predominantly white women, there's very few black males, and there's several black women scattered in and around, you know, in, in these schools or whatever, too. But when you see so many of these people that don't understand and don't identify with your children, this is one aspect of a problem. See, the first thing they do is immediately say, well, the children are come from poor or disadvantaged homes. The children come from uneducated families. The children come from crime-ridden areas. They point all these fingers and do all the victim blaming. But there is some blame to be put in other directions, and some of these teachers just don't really care. They don't get paid to care. They're not ever going to care. They didn't get into the profession because they cared. They're not going to be convinced to care. They're not going to be compelled to care. They've got their union protecting them, and they don't have to care. 
I've been engaged and involved with the teachers. I dated a woman for several years that's a teacher, and I saw what the teachers do. As soon as they get off work, turn up. I mean, I'm not joking. I've seen it around the country, a few different states I've been in, and seen the teachers in in those different situations in school districts across the country. In two different places I lived, in a third I was visiting and saw the same behavior. Turn up. Get lit up. Get the stress off. Let's move on with our day and don't worry about these crazy kids or whatever. So someone that's possibly racially insensitive, people that have been scientifically proven to not be able to engage or feel empathy towards people that don't look like them. These are real factors. And when they can use the administrative tools given them to suspend your children and to expel your children and put your children on the pipeline, on the train tracks, on the railroad, headed to incarceration, Incarceration of some sort or another, introducing them to law enforcement in the classroom for disciplinary action. Little children having tantrums at school, little children being told to do this or do that, and they don't understand, and they don't do exactly as they're told, and call the police in and have them shackled, taken away in the car. I think there's been a few cases where little children, black children, of course, been tased by the police. This is very real. So it says the problem was even worse in the St. Louis public schools, which suspended 29% of its elementary school students during the year of the study. And in the unaccredited school districts of Normandy and Riverview Gardens, each of which suspended about 21% of its elementary students. That's a lot of little kids to, what are you just giving up on them? What else are children going to do? What, what is a kid going to do with it today? They don't know how to make decisions. They don't know what's going on. You don't have any interest in what's really messing up their heads or messing up their lives so they're caught up in this way. Says the UCLA study notes that the suspension gap makes it harder to tackle the achievement gap because those students who often come to school needing additional instruction find themselves actually getting less of it. In part, that's why St. Louis Public Schools has reacted to the high suspension numbers with changed policies. And they're trying to see some drops kick in here. Stacy Clay, the uh, deputy superintendent of student support services in St. Louis, said the district has made changes to its code of conduct handbook to give teachers and administrators better guidance on how to respond to certain discipline situations. The district is encouraging alternatives to suspensions such as behavior contracts, restorative justice, and role playing. In the most recent year, suspensions were down to about 4,000. That rate is still among the highest in the state. But it's a decrease. So they're happy they got some kind of a decrease, but 4,000 suspensions is still ridiculous. And they say no matter how you slice it, this new worst-in-the-nation ranking is another indication that Missouri's priorities are out of whack. If schools in high-poverty areas have too many students with discipline problems, what are we going to do about it? How will we address the failure of the entire school district? How will we help these children that the state is just leaving left behind. It's yet another warning sign, they say, that Missouri schools are separate and unequal. Well, that may be so. 
I don't know that they were ever meant to be equal. And along these lines, so we go from the suspension aspect of it to an article from Raw Story that's talking about interrogation methods being used in the classrooms. And remind you, we're talking about children. And every once in a while I bring up and talk about children to kind of soften some people up because I know a lot of people just don't care about other adults. They just don't care. If I talked about penguins, I'd get more people opening their hearts and having a concern. I could sit here and tell you about the endangered damn California condor. And the blood would start to flow warm in your heart and you would be concerned with what you could do to help. But I could tell you about a million people caught up in some kind of a net having to do with the system and ending up in prison and the torture and the rape and the, and, and I mean, you see a flat line. The emotion doesn't even have a blip. So I bring up children sometimes hoping that there's still some people with a heart that care about the kids and think that some of the stuff we got going on with our children is probably a little bit crazy. And maybe that, you know, once I hear about it, then, you know, eh, now maybe I do care and I, I want to get involved some kind of way. I didn't know I wanted to be in the abolitionist movement because I didn't really care about people going to prison. But when I hear about the school to prison pipeline and I hear about what they do to the children, it does get me interested. So, I mean, I, I, I'll be, I'll be like an, like an abolitionist ally. I'll be like a, an associated abolitionist just to work for the kids. I'm not going to work for the adults. Do whatever you got to do. Seriously, it doesn't, I'm not, you know, there's no one person over another person in this movement. There's no kings and queens and presidents and what have you. It's an organism of all sorts of people with all sorts of concerns that basically have to do with freedom and real liberty and real justice and real public safety and something sustainable, sustainable financially, sustainable emotionally, sustainable psychologically, and so forth. But these systems we have in place now, you cannot make any sort of argument whatsoever that any of it is sustainable. So maybe you're just a person that's got OCD for right and wrong, for sustainable and unsustainable. Maybe you just, you just got a, a chip. You just got a bug up your butt for something that's, that doesn't make any sense. You can't keep doing that. Well, I want to get involved in abolitionism because we can't keep doing this because it can't keep happening. There's just no way around it. It can't, we can't keep building up the numbers. We can't keep paying for. We can't keep increasing the budgets of. We can't keep burying the bodies from. We can't keep leading people off the path into. We can't keep stowing away the undesirables. We can't keep doing what is happening. It's not sustainable. It may have missed you right now, but it's catching many, many millions every day. So that's why we discuss it here. In this story, like I said, from Raw Story, it says, uh, adult interrogation methods do not belong in the classroom. So why are school administrators throughout the United States being trained to use them on their students in order to ex extract confessions? Says Johnny Reed and Associates is the largest interrogation trainer in the world. 
and teaches such methods to hundreds of school administrators each year. Last month, members of the Illinois Principals Association, for instance, could register for a quote-unquote professional development event on investigative interviewing and active persuasion. The School Administrators Association of New York State recently offered a workshop for administrators on this same topic titled, Are You Sure They Are Telling the Truth? These administrators are learning the read technique, which relies on maximization and minimalization. Tactics in order to induce suspects to confess. Minimization focuses on reducing a suspect's feelings of guilt, while maximization is designed to heighten suspect anxiety using confrontation. Playing good cop, bad cop, basically. It's basically what it is. Both techniques are legal and both are incredibly coercive. Controlled studies of read interrogation have documented that while such techniques may increase the likelihood that a guilty person will confess, they also increase the likelihood that an innocent person will as well. New research released in February found that the read technique causes witnesses to falsely implicate others. Read and Associates itself advises caution when using the technique on children, especially in schools. In addition to concerns about the efficacy of principal-administered interrogations are those involving basic fairness. School administrators are not required to issue Miranda warnings to children they interrogate on their own without law enforcement present, so children are not advised of their rights to an attorney or to remain silent. There's already a well-recognized trend of law enforcement coercing confessions from the young and the vulnerable, siphoning them into the criminal justice system. One example is the Inglewood Four in Chicago, teenage boys who were coerced into falsely confessing to murder and spent more than 15 years in prison as a result. Terrell Swift is one of the four. He gave a confession, and he's got a civil suit against his police interrogators. There are many recent, less trumpeted cases where the coercion of youth seems less than an outlier than being just a general police tactic. Juvenile coerced confessions share certain hallmarks, use of intimidation, threats, promises of leniency, and outright lies, so that the youth feel their only way out is by confessing. Adult interrogators take advantage of the fact that children are less mature and more susceptible to pressure, and that they lack experience to make decisions in their best interest. Do you think that any of this makes any sense? Is this why you send your kid to school? Is this what you pay a tax dollars for to send your kid to the school district? We'll have a little bit more when we come back from the break. This is the Abolitionist Daily. This is Johanna Nalaya. This is the Black Talk Radio Network. This is Brother Elliot, first of time for an awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. And we are back. This is the Abolitionist Daily, and this is Johan and Elia on the Black Talk Radio Network. And before the break, we were discussing the school-to-prison pipeline from a little bit different angle, some of the more nefarious means that are used to drive children into situations that change the course of their educational career, 
possibly changing the course of their lives overall and engaging them in some sort of criminal consequences for things they don't even know what they're getting involved in. We were talking about the widespread training of school administration in the art of getting people to confess to things. This is what school districts are spending money on. And these are professionals that, as they called it, teach about maximizing and minimizing, which is boiled down to means the good cop, bad cop routine. Play, play friend a little bit and make sure they don't feel like they're in trouble and there's no, there's nothing to, nothing to hide. Nothing's going to happen. Just tell me what, you know, what you know. I'm sure you're a good person and you don't know anything and you didn't do anything, but I just need to know what happened and you could trust me and all this kind of stuff. And then the other side, look, you know what's going to happen because of what you did. Tell me what you did and I won't make it so hard on you. Tell on the other ones and then you'll be the one will, you know, work out a deal for you, but somebody's got to pay for this. You don't want it to be you. You've seen freaking law and order, man. You know the deal. Hell, they do it on a, what is it, a CSI? All these uh, police procedurals have shown the, the, the good cop, bad cop. It's a long-running joke. Well, your school administration staff is being professionally trained in the art. And they're not required to read children Miranda rights. They can go in and take your kid in and start questioning them without you knowing anything about it. The kid could come home from school and already have a, a report and a, and a investigation going on concerning them. And you don't know anything about it until the day they come to the door and take them away. So continuing from raw story from uh, what they were talking about, we were right before the break, they were just saying how um, the youth feel compelled to answer police questions because of the officer's elevated position of power. And the same holds true to administrative staff in the school system. Youth in the criminal justice system are more likely to have diagnosable psychological disorders, and they often fall victim to this status differential. So this is why young people are more than likely going to give a confession to an adult. More so than adults, and hell, you see, most adults give in. We told you before, over 90% of the convictions year to year in this country come from plea deals, not trial convictions. Prosecutors aren't doing their jobs and presenting a case, proving beyond a reasonable doubt that people are guilty of anything they've been charged with. That's not happening. What's happening over 90% of the time is prosecutors are just throwing everything they can up against the wall. We talked about it in the municipal judicial aspects. We've been discussing with this state-to-state racket, stacking tickets, stacking fees, and it goes on up through criminal charges, misdemeanors, and felonies, stacking charges up. And when a person looks at that and they can't pay the bail and they think about how they've already missed two or three days at work and they finally get to talk to the prosecutor about why they're even there and they already used their sick days and they're already begging for a favor from somebody to call their boss and make sure that, you know, and this is the reality of what people got to deal with. 
Don't play the game with me like everybody has just got some great career and owns their own business and has their own wealth and they can afford to miss two or three weeks off of work or take a month off or hell, two years and get ready to face that trial because I'm innocent and and this is America and I'm going to be proven that no. You might have 1% of the general population that could play that game. Maybe 1%. The overwhelming number of people in this country cannot sustain missing a single paycheck or receiving a half of a paycheck for missing half the time or getting into any type of uh, administrative record or having anything in their file for missing days and then to find out it was because they were in jail. Whether they're innocent or not is not a factor. Just knowing that you got arrested and you had to go to jail, the assumption is going to be right off the bat, well, you must have did something because they just don't do that. They just wouldn't just take you to jail. Who just goes to jail? And you could have not done anything and facing a bunch of tickets they're throwing at you, especially if you live in Ferguson, especially if you live in the state of Alabama, the state of Missouri, two places. Indiana, North Carolina, Texas, Georgia, Florida. We gave you 15 states the other day that are leading the nation in ripping people's pockets and putting in place all sorts of codes and laws where you, you they don't have to decide or find out by the court, doesn't have to decide. If you're indigent, you just can't even pay at all. They don't have to figure that out. They don't have to protect your 14th Amendment rights. They can put you in debtor's prison. So you see that the children themselves are in danger. Subjecting children to coercive interrogations by school officials serves no other purpose than to escalate the flow of our nation's youth into the school to prison pipeline, a phenomenon by which violations of school rules become criminalized and children, particularly poor or LGBTQ, black, Hispanic, funneled out of schools and into jails and prisons. Not only does this pipeline lead to higher rates of incarceration, but it also results in economic insecurity. Rather than training principals to interrogate, schools should focus on non-punitive approaches like in-school behavior modification, mentorship, and diversion tactics. That is the more ethical and more community-centered approach. And I tend to agree. I'm not sending my son to school to be interrogated. And when he comes in and tells me anything about someone asked him some questions or somebody wanted to know this or that, I tell him, they have my email, they got my number, have them call me. Anything you want to know, you should be able to contact me and ask me. Why would you ask the child? Child doesn't know anything. Child can't help you with that information. Let's be sure you find out from the source what he's dealing with. And like I said, one of the reasons that the U.S. itself doesn't join in and ratify the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the international treaty, is because in the United States of America, we will still give a life sentence to a child. 
We want to keep that on the table for some reason. We want to increase our ability to interrogate and enhance our, our, our abilities along those lines. And then once we interrogate and we get the information we want, then we want to be able to give them life. We want to keep that on the table. Is that the America you believe you live in? Is that is that cool with you? I mean, these are mandatory sentences that we're willing to hand out. And from the Equal Justice Initiative, They talk about a 2005 uh, U.S. Supreme Court declared Roper v. Simmons that death by execution is unconstitutional for juveniles. Before that ruling, 365 children had been legally executed in the United States, including 22 since 1985. Did you know that? Were you aware that since 85, 22 children have been executed legally in the United States? until the 2005 Supreme Court changed that. So with that ban, the Equal Justice or Equal Justice Initiative was able to start focusing on the plight of nearly 3,000 children aged 17 or younger who have been sentenced to imprisonment until death through life without parole sentences imposed with very little scrutiny or review. Children as young as 13 were among thousands that have been condemned to die in prisons. Most of the sentences imposed on these children were mandatory. The court could not give any consideration of the child's age or life history. Some of the children were charged with crimes that do not involve homicide or even injury. Many were convicted for offenses where older teens or adults were primarily primarily responsible for the crime. 70% of condemned kids 14 or younger are children of color. Big shock. I know you were expecting, when I got ready to say 70% of those condemned kids were, I know there was somebody listening that was not expecting me to say it was going to be black kids. It's shocking, I know. Every category, America, seriously? Name for me something else that every category anybody else leads in. Everything associated with it. What do we got? uh, White males in elected positions. uh, White males as CEOs. White males operating banks. uh, I don't know. I mean, just trying to pick something out the air that that I'm pretty sure you'll be able to see across the line. Every category is going to be one type of individual. So then you go to the entirely 180 degrees opposite direction, the other end of the spectrum, everything having to do with death, incarceration, poor health, poverty, victimization, criminalization, whatever. It's always got to be people of color. And so when I read to you the abolitionist creed, the abolitionist manifesto, the declaration of the abolitionist at the beginning of the programs, and I'll tell you about how that 13th Amendment was used, was written specifically for Africans in America. I'm not joking. And when I tell you that the police are doing their primary job of enforcing that 13th Amendment, I'm not joking around. 
from the babies to the elderly. I'm sure one day I'll report to you some ridiculous statistic about how people over 70 or how people can find the wheelchairs or how people with severe mental retardation in a vegetative state or how people with terminal illness or how people with, I mean, whatever kind of ridiculously insufferable, unlivable conditions of life but still have something to do with going to prison or getting killed by police, it's still going to be black people. The most quadriplegics locked up are blacks. The most straight-up brain-dead vegetables in prison are blacks. And on and on and on. 70% of children 14 or younger condemned to life sentences with no chance of parole, given a death sentence to prison. 70% of them are black children, children of color. So they're just saying, we believe such a harsh sentence imposed on children is cruel and unusual in violation of the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. We hear that all the time. All of this crap is always violating the Eighth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, on and on and on. It just never freaking ends. When are we going to stop taking it? When are we going to take a demand to an election ever? I give so little of a damn about how pretty somebody is, how sexy they are, how cool and how smooth they are. Do you realize how much money, billions and billions of dollars was just thrown at the propaganda machine in the 2008 election? Telling you about how cool Obama was, how smooth Obama was. Obama's this, Obama's that. He's so cool. He speaks so well. He's so fun. He's so this. He's, it's a celebrity freaking American Idol. Not one single solitary demand was required. No requests, no expectations. The Latinos came in and said, we want the Dream Act. We want to see, uh, the reversal of these policies that are throwing our people in prisons and people trying to come over here and, and get a new life. So they got on board. They, they, fled the Republican ship and believed in the, in the dream. They still fighting for that to this day. They had a demand at least. Do you see the difference? Gays came to the table and said, we want gay marriage. They came to the voting booth with a demand in their hand. They came to the negotiation table with a, with a certain degree of power, with a certain amount of power. Are you going to tell me 3% of the population being gays and 13% of the population being black, but you're going to tell me that that 3% can affect policy and the 13% can't do nothing but suck their thumb and gaga-goo-goo some little babies, Malcolm X political chump style. You're going to tell me that the Latino vote, whose concern largely represents 11 million illegal, federally violating, felonious individuals. But they get a seat at the negotiation table and they tell the president to be straight up. This is what we want. We want you to wipe those felonies. What can you do for us? He's been fighting to get it done, hasn't he? But when it comes to black people, and you know, 
that 70% of children under 14 or uh, yeah, children under 14 that have been given life sentences, 14 or younger people. I'm not even saying 14 is the baseline. 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, whatever we can get. Your black ass is gone forever. We can't come to the table and, and let it be known to the candidate. Hey, if you want the black vote, we got to talk about getting these thousands of little kids, little kids out. This, this is some foolishness. And what you're going to do if you want our vote is get these babies off of life. No, you're going to end that mandatory sentencing. You're going to change those laws. You're going to get those children out of prison right now. It sure would be nice. I guess that's a fantasy world somewhere. If we just did it for the children. I'm not even talking about the ridiculous number of people that are falsely incarcerated in the adult prisons and jails. I mean, come on. I, I realize that's too much for y'all. That's way too much. for. I might as well tell you, go get a gun and start the, civil, the next civil war or something. You, you're not going to do that either. I know you're not getting ready to get up and go fight for the one and a half million. Even though exonerations go up by the hundreds every year, even though conviction integrity units keep popping up around the country right out of the prosecutor's offices, even though Innocence Project is did, did nothing but grown and expanded over the years, they never had a reason to go out of business or for there to be proven that they were unnecessary. In fact, they need more help to do more work. Even though we steadily see city after city paying in the tens of millions of dollars every single year in police abuse, civil settlements, the taxpayers are on the hook for. We know all of this, and you ain't about to move a finger. As the old folks used to say, you ain't about to bust a grape. I might as well be talking to a dead microphone because people are just not even going to care about the, the massive, pervasive corruption that's going on. We are trying to create a case for you to be able to see clearly, and we're going to get into that here in just a minute because it's been named already. So that's the thing. When we came up with this, we didn't know there was legal precedent already set. We didn't know there was already federal lawsuits being filed claiming RICO, just like we said last week or two weeks ago. We've put the pieces together ourselves and none of us have been to law school. So we're going to get into that in a second, but I want to finish just telling you about the, the, the terrible, terrible situation going on with our children and finish up this school to prison pipeline thing. So you can see it's not just a school to prison pipeline, but this is the end of the pipeline. This is the prison. They already in the prison. So they're not headed there. We're not, maybe you take it lightly, the suspensions. Maybe you just take that lightly. It's just, you know, Hey, I got suspended, I guess. And, and it's just not that big of a deal to me. And, you know, I just had to be good and get whatever you think. Okay, blow it off however you need to and just don't see that as a problem. But surely somebody listening can feel something in their heart when I tell you that we've got 14-year-old and younger children, thousands of them, in life behind bars situations with no possibility of parole due to mandatory sentencing guidelines. That's got to shake somebody up. That's got to have somebody thinking, damn, 
What can I do? So in 2006, the Equal Justice Initiative launched a litigation campaign to challenge death and prison sentences imposed on children. In November 2009, EJI attorneys went to the U.S. Supreme Court and argued for a constitutional ban on imposing death and prison sentences on children. In May 17, 2010, the court issued a groundbreaking ruling in Graham v. Florida declaring that life without parole sentences could no longer be imposed on juveniles convicted of non-homicide offenses. The court's decision in Graham recognized that children are different from adults in several ways that directly impact the appropriate punishment for juvenile offenses. Since 2010, EJI has has provided legal representation to nearly 100 people in the United States who are entitled to new sentences under the Graham law. In March 2012, EJI lawyers argued at the Supreme Court that sentencing kids to life in prison without parole for any offense is cruel and unusual punishment that violates the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, relying on the court's recognition in Roper and Graham that children's unique immaturity, impulsiveness, vulnerability, and capacity for redemption and rehabilitation are not crime-specific. On June 25, 2012, the Supreme Court issued a historic ruling in Miller v. Alabama and Jackson v. Hobbs holding that mandatory life without parole sentences for all children 17 and younger convicted of homicide are unconstitutional. The ruling will affect hundreds of individuals whose sentences did not take their age or their mitigating factors into account. The court did not ban all juvenile life without parole sentences, but wrote that requiring sentences to consider children's diminished culpability and heightened capacity for change should make such sentences uncommon. So, there you have it. Some information on it leading you towards understanding more specifically the evil that permeates from your halls of justice. See, we got all of this mandatory minimum sentencing from that super predator crap. From that 1980s hysteria of the wolf packs and the Central Park lady, the Central Park jogger getting raped and all those black kids in wolf packs and the Jones Beach and folks fighting at the beach and the black bikers and the black kids and the kids. And it's always this black criminality and it's been this scapegoat mentality. Like I said earlier, it's the same thing to justify the inhumanity. These people are savages. It's what happened to the American Indians. Savages. Godless. Ignorant. No systems of government. No systems of religions. No understanding of how to conserve the environment and how to really run this country. They would, they need us to take over for them. So those hundreds of millions of people that we're killing off, and all those hundreds of millions of buffalo that we're destroying and stockpiling the skulls so they we can starve them out, and those smallpox blankets, and that alcohol we're introducing to them, and the drug war we're enacting upon them, and the rapes that we're doing, and infiltrating their DNA. All that's justified because they're savages. And you already know the story with the African. I don't even have to tell you how bad the Africans were. How evil and black. Look at them. They're black. Of course there's something wrong with them. They're black. 
So it justifies what we need to do to these Africans and these mandatory minimum sentences for children. And then you know that the 70% of them are going to black children. I mean, you know clearly what the deal is. And then you have little white children that get affluenza and kill four people and get probation. So I don't have to make stuff up. I live in reality, and it's it's jacked up enough. I don't need to make up something to tell you to try to get you to care or to identify yourself as somebody that don't, so I can mark that, and I know who you are, and I know the score. I'd rather know that you didn't. If you don't, I don't want you lying and acting like you're on our side and, and you really don't care. I'd rather you just let it be known straight out what you think, how you feel. I like that. And we could just make a little mark and we know what's your situation, where you stand. And when it, I guess when it goes down, we can we know who to use for human shields. Since you don't care. So moving on, I'll give you a little prime to what we're going to be talking about here to wrap up the program. We're going back to Alabama. And we're going back into Ferguson, America. As we've been discussing on the program, what the uh, Attorney General spoke to us about the DOJ report and saying that he hopes that it's just an anomaly, but what we're doing is staying hard on the trail to prove that it is indeed not an anomaly. It is the rule. It is the norm. It is what's happening in America. The probation racket, the fees, the fines, the collections, the, the techniques, the warrants being arrest, uh, uh, issued for your arrest, these types of things. This is a racket. This is an ongoing racketeering scheme. And the evidence continues to stack up to prove that to be a fact. Not at all some baseless claim. In fact, like I said, I was surprised to find out that there is already a federal lawsuit before the courts that's calling it exactly what it is. And they're charging them under the RICO statute. The title of the case is Roxanne Reynolds et al. v. Judicial Correction Services Incorporated. And we talked about Roxanne Reynolds' case yesterday a little bit on the program, on the previous podcast, and we discussed this uh, judicial correction services and how they're going throughout state to state marketing themselves as the people that can take the load off the court clerks, the people that can go out and get the judicial, uh, get the get the money for the cities, get those fines. We can go get that money. All we need you to do is give us the authorization to get warrants issued for people's arrest and we can threaten them with going to jail and they'll pay. And even when they don't pay, we got a whole nother backside of this scheme where once they get in jail, then you can charge them for, for taking care of them in the jail. So we're really just going to get you more money. And we discuss some of these specific cases of some of these people. Individuals, not just you know, shadowy descriptions of 
crazy things or whatever and not giving you specifics. No, we're giving you specifics and names and people and dates and cities and amounts and time in jail and jurisdictions and judges and names of companies and people involved. And now today we're going to give you some court case information and help you build up your own understanding and help you to, to create a narrative around what's really plaguing our nation. What's really driving us to, to be the most incarcerated nation on the planet. 5% of all the people on the planet live in America. Only 5%. But we have 25% of all the people on the planet who are some kind of way locked up in a jail. That should have you a little concerned. We're going to take a break and break. Uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to get into Ferguson, America, still focusing on Al- on Alabama and uh, RICO charges for extorting the people. You're listening to The Abolitionist Daily. And we'll be right back. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for live programming schedules. Visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. And we are back. This is the Abolitionist Daily. This is Johan and Elia on the Black Talk Radio Network. Just want to take a moment. If you've made it this far into the program, then uh, hopefully we have said some things and demonstrated some things and got you thinking about some things that you uh, recognize it would be quite unlikely for you to come into this information by any other means. You would have to be doing some pretty detailed research in a lot of cases. You would have to otherwise already know and care about this information. Maybe this is just now being introduced to you and you understand what you're hearing is something that, that is important and it's leading you to some conclusion one way or another. If you want to take action, if you want to stop it, if you want to tell others about it. But from all of that, at this point in the program, I hope that it's evident to you that what you're hearing you want to be able to continue to hear it. You want to be able to continue to have access to it. And not just this program, but the Black Talk Radio Network overall. Dozens of programs. Drawing in tens of thousands of people month in, month out. Unique visitors, first-time visitors, and people that come back every day. Many of our podcasts enjoy a listener that actually stays put and listens to the entire program. And a lot of these programs are hour and a half or two hour programs. Many of the things that we discuss are so detailed and so deep and need to be explained and and need to be researched and broken down. That's why they're missed by the mainstream media because it can't be broken down into a five minute little plug and a couple sound bites. And then people get a basic understanding and then we're moving on to commercial. And that's a huge difference in what we do. We don't have those kinds of commercials. We don't have commercial sponsorship. We don't have federal grants. We don't get monies from people that can control and dictate to us what we should be talking about and and what we should be exposing. But what we do have is a completely community-supported network. And this is our 2015 fundraiser. 
So I'm out here raising awareness of the fundraiser because I want the abolitionist daily to be able to stay on the air. I want new abolitionist radio to be able to stay on the air, but I also want context of white supremacy, black talk, radio news, Tanya free and friends, Thando radio show on and on and on political prisoner radio is one of the first programs I heard on this, on this station some years ago. Information I had not heard, but I wanted to know, and and I hadn't known previously where to find it. And somehow I saw a promo for it, and I clicked on it, and I came to the to the station, and I sat there and listened to the whole program, and the information I got changed my life. And this is an experience that people need to have. In an instant gratification world. In a no accountability society, in an unsustainable situation that we have, unhealthy in so many ways, people need an alternative like this. So not only is it for our pleasure to support it, it's also to an, to an extent our duty to do so. Because if God forbid it goes away, it, there won't be another like it. So make a simple contribution. Click on blacktalkradionetwork.com. Right on the website, the landing page, it tells you about the fundraiser, and there's a link you can click right there to make a donation. BlackTalkMediaProject.org. Click on the page, click on Donate, make a donation. Pledge yourself to a dollar a month, $5 a month, $10 a month. Because there's literally tens of thousands of people that listen to these programs and visit the website regularly and like i said sit and stay planted for two hours and listen to the entire show that that's something that's not common and i'm a podcast listener i listen to some of the prominent comedians that i enjoy i listen to news podcasts i listen to political podcasts and i don't often listen to the entire thing i mean i'll listen to the part i came there for if i hear something good i'll try but I've got too much other stuff going on. I can't really sit and listen to it all. But people come to the Black Talk Radio Network, and we see the numbers. And they listen to the entire program. So if that's something that you know it's you we're talking about, and you hear this, just make a simple donation, and let's just be sure that it can stay on the air. Because we don't take salaries. We're not earning pay from doing this in cash. I've told you before, I'm here in a watchman capacity. I'm telling you about what direction the sword is coming down on us. And I'm trying to wash the blood from my own hands because if we don't change what's going on in America, it's going to be a lot of blood running in the streets. It's how the country was built. It's how the country has been maintained. And when the people get enough and get fed up, it's how they're going to get their freedom back. I don't have to call for it. Nobody has to call for it. All you got to do is open your eyes and see you're not going to get it any other way. So I'm trying to clear my hands of the innocence by telling everybody I can. So if you want this type of a radio program to continue to be on the air, informative, investigative, revealing information, not gossiping, not about a bunch of crap and foolish pop culture BS or whatever, nothing mindless here, very mindful. If you like it, please donate. We need to keep it going. We need to stay on the air, so make a donation, please. Thank you. 
back to what we were discussing before the break and we're about to get into to close out the program today. We'll be going back to our Ferguson America series because Ferguson, Missouri is not the worst and it surely is not an anomaly. And I feel like so far in the things we've discussed, we've been able to prove quite clearly that what happened in Ferguson is happening in several states around America. And they may not call it the same thing, but the effect is the same. And terrorism is terrorism. One way or another. It's terrorism. When you're terrorizing the people, when you're issuing threats of their incarceration, and the people already know that there's a, there's a chance anyway, if not entirely a likelihood, there's definitely a chance of their brutalization at the hands of law enforcement. We've talked about the emails that were caught in Ferguson, and we know full well the emails and the, the text messages in San Francisco. We know full well that this is prevalent throughout the departments. These are not one-time incidents that a couple of cops in San Francisco got caught talking about darkies and niggers and apes and animals and all of this stuff. And then we know that it wasn't just a few people in Ferguson, Darren Wilson in on the getting CC'd in on the emails. He's in the pictures at the at the office parties and and hugging and cozied up to the court clerk that was dismissed that was sending out the emails and the jokes about abortion, black woman having abortion, getting a bonus from Crime Stoppers, President Obama's chimpanzee or whatever the hell she was sending out. Darren Wilson was right there with her. So if a person can be criminally implicated in a murder, in an armed robbery, in some type of a capital crime, just by being caught in a picture with somebody that, that they feel like did it or whatever. You could be, I mean, how is he not guilty by association? Oh, right. That's right. He resigned before his job could be called for because he raised a million dollars in freely given funds from the general public through GoFundMe and this type of stuff. And then he took another probably about a million from ABC for giving his exclusive interview to tell the world how Michael Brown looked like a demon and was tossing him to and fro. And he felt like a rag doll, all six foot four of him, all 220 pounds of him was being tossed around like a rag doll and he feared for his life. And he thought he was going to die. The next punch, the next blow could be the last that he took before he died. And so he had to pull out his gun because he had to go home. And then the pictures come out and the guy looked like he, his face looked like he went to sleep sitting at his desk and had his hand pressed against his cheek. If he got hit upside his head, it wasn't by Michael Brown. Not in anger and not in defending his own life. So we see that these things are prevalent and these departments are, are rife with racial discrimination and racial epithets being tossed around and racial insensitivity. And the idea that I suppose these people are still trying to push on us is that these law enforcement professionals are able to turn that on and turn that off because mind you, it's not illegal for a person to work for the KK to be a member of the KKK and also be a law enforcement officer. If they're found out, there's some shaming that can go on and they'll leave their job or whatever. But I don't know that that's illegal for someone to, to do that. I haven't heard of it being announced when they've stepped down from police chief positions. 
sergeants and lieutenants in the police departments, and this has happened, and recently, when people are found out, they leave the job, but I don't know that it's illegal that they could be forced out. I guess if a person just had the cojones to want to take it to the limit, I wouldn't be surprised in America if Americans got behind that. They sure as hell get behind these killer cops. Daniel Panatello had several cases against him from the citizens in Staten Island. Claims of him fondling people and strip searching people and literally making people strip down naked in the street. The cop that shot, uh, that shot John Crawford in the Walmart, he had the only other uh, fatal shooting on the police force there. He wasn't in any kind of, nobody was checking into his background or saying what he was doing wrong. But they did interrogate John Crawford's uh, fiance, his baby mama. They did take her in and didn't even tell her he was dead and interrogated her viciously for a couple of hours and this man's baby is in her stomach and they don't even tell her that he's dead they try to get any kind of dirt they can get on him before they let her know so they can put that out in the news and say well we found out he was he was a domestic abuser we found out he was a drug user Yep, we found out yep it has nothing to do with why we shot him but we just want to let you know that uh, he, I mean, you know, he probably deserved it. Tamir Rice, cop that shot him, he couldn't even get on the force in the city he first applied at and went through the training and whatnot. His training officer said straight out, this dude, no way, no how, needs to be a cop. There's just simply no way. He's horrible. He has no control of his emotions. He can't handle himself in a stressful situation. He's not even really that good with a gun. Moved over a couple cities and went on in and got a job as a cop in another city and got his chance to kill him a little black baby. So this is something that we're seeing that's systemic. And like I said, when we saw the Ferguson, we saw the report come out and talk about what was going on in the inner workings of the police and the judicial system there, the municipal decision makers in the city government. All of it connected, an ongoing criminal conspiracy. We're expanding that and we're seeing the same the same trends in cities around the country. And we're still in Alabama. We got a story out of the New Yorker. It says, on a cold November afternoon, Harriet Cleveland, a 49-year-old mother of three, waved, waved me over from the steps of her pink cottage in Montgomery, Alabama. She was off to her part-time job as a custodian at a local daycare center, looking practical, but confectionery, pink lipstick, a pastel yellow and pink tunic, dangly pink earrings, blah, blah, blah. We'll move on to where we get into the meat of this thing. Harriet Cleveland's troubles began in 2008 when a police roadblock went up in her neighborhood. She soon received several tickets for driving without insurance and without a license. I knew it was wrong, she told me, but she had to take her son to school and to travel to work. When she was unable to pay her fines, a judge sentenced her to two years of probation with Judicial Correction Services, a for-profit company. And she would owe JCS the sum of $200 a month, with $40 of that going towards a supervision fee. Ms. Cleveland considered the arrangement a reprieve. 
She didn't even know no better than to think it was someone who was trying to help her. That's how beat down you are. You're not free. You don't have any expectation of freedom. You can't. You can't possibly think that you're going to be free. That you can have liberty. That you can experience justice for you. To think like this. I mean, I don't want to get into the Freedmen's thing. I don't want to get, go all more on you here or whatever and claim my international statehood and all that. You know, I'm not getting into all of that. But for you to give me a fine for having uh, no insurance and having no license, okay, fair enough. But what I owe is what the city's fine is. I don't owe the correction services or whatever. And I sure as hell am not seeing them taking $40 off every hundred. It's giving me another chance of some kind of reprieve. Oh, they're going to help me out. The hell you say? But I guess you got to be one of these radical crazy type people or something like me. To get worked up about something like that. Do you think I would be? There's no, 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 and no, no. All the no's in Noville. No, no, and no. There's no way. I will pay the fine. For what I did that's on the city books in the city I live in or that I was traveling through when I got caught by the cop and did what I did. Okay, fine. But you sure as hell ain't bringing in some parasite vendor to rip me off of $40 off every hundred and I'm paying these people for the next... Hell no. I'm sorry, Miss Cleveland, that this happened to you. But what happened was not a reprieve and she found out. Within the first year, Cleveland regularly reported to the JCS office with her cash in her purse, whatever she could put together, handing it to a woman in a crisp collar shirt who she assumed was working for the state. But she quickly fell behind on payments, in part because her weekly cash delivery sometimes went solely to covering the company's supervision fee. No kidding. It's freaking racketeer. Man, it's old school VIG. Merchant of Venice. It's the old-fashioned freaking, what they call it, the uh Shylock. Loan sharking, but you didn't take out a loan. The state decided that they wanted to take out a loan to force you to pay. They decided to take out a loan that you owe owe the VIG on. And then put you in jail. They could have put her in jail for the for the license if they wanted to, if that was the state law. But let me move on because I've ranted about this and I'm just so disgusted. I'm just so disappointed that all these brilliant legal minds, all these degrees, all these sorors and frats, all these brilliant, talented, tenth pieces, all these people that know so damn much don't know shoe polish from what comes out of the person's tail end. I just don't want to say the words I really want to say right now. I'm just disgusted. The people that are sitting around passive to this. What the hell good was going to Morehouse Law and going to, to Harvard Law and getting your Columbia degrees and getting your... What was the point? So you could drive a Benz? Wear tailored suits and red bottom shoes and take cruises? Conspicuous consumption? individualism, individual exceptionalism. You just want these people, you just want to raise your hand and say, look at me, I'm special. Look, I'm special. 
Don't you understand when the tally comes back, when the rolls get called, you're going to be seen as one of the worst among us. If I can sit up here and tell more truth to the people and fight for the people's freedom, and I ain't stepped day one in Morehouse or wherever else you come from, how the hell are you going to justify your existence on the planet? Because you gave a pancake breakfast for some little kids? Okay, great. You fed them some pancakes. You did a Toys for Tots? Good. Glad you did it. We got something out of you. But how about for the real problems we got that's got us all in a system of oppression? Can you wrap your big brain around that? Can you sacrifice your name? Sacrifice your lifestyle? Can you afford to put it on the line for our way of life? I'm trying to tell you about one more story of one more woman. I've already told you about four or five people and thousands of people that are represented in class action suits that are trying to get through the system. And for the most part, the people that I've been introduced to, whether they be professors or PhDs or practicing JD attorneys, what people don't even know. You know how many people we talk to that don't even know the 13th Amendment exception means that slavery wasn't abolished? That's just a starting point. Getting into the depths of things like this, getting into the depths of the Ferguson report. It's like high science or something. So forgive me if I get a little emotional because I surely expect more from our best and brightest. This movement and the changes that are going to come as a result of this movement are going to come from the grassroots and from the people like you and me. And whoever else out there has got all these credentials that gets on board, we love you. We welcome you. We've got plenty of people. Degreed up, educated up, representing organizations and doing what, yes, I love them all. I'm not knocking it. They know who they are. Like they say, a hit dog, uh, the one that hollers. So the people that know that they out here getting that grind on for the people, they ain't even worried about what I just said. But it's these assimilationists that's trying to buy their way into friendships and achieve their way into truly assimilating into the American dream. And I deal with them all the time. I deal with them all the time. There should not be any black attorneys that feel proud of themselves and feel proud of the work they do. And there's 3,000 children currently locked up with life without possibility of parole sentences, 70% of them being black. Do you understand where I'm coming from? I know I didn't stay stuck to the to the probation, and I'm trying to get back to it. I promise I'm, I, I just really want to tell you about that. But I got something in my spirit right now that's just saying, you know what? It's time out for the crap, man. It's time out for the games. These are the people leading the people. Don't you see that? The few children that do see shining lights and do want to pull up out and do want to be drawn up into do want to give themselves, do want to exceed and excel. They're looking at you. They're looking at you as the shining example. Well, he came from so-and-so university. He went to so-and-so college. He's a, a Kappa. He's a, he's a Omega. 
Oh, she's so-and-so. Oh, she's AKA. She's a Delta. This is what the children are looking at, the ones that want to achieve. You say you don't want the little children focusing on ball players and rappers. Okay, you come that far. Good for you. You say you don't want the children to look at these people as role models. You want the children to look at Barack Obama and have hope. You want the children to look around and see the ones that got their educations and got their degrees and achieved and excelled. But the children need to see the reality of the truth. All of these little situations we got going on, people, this should be your career. When we couldn't do any better, that's what we did. You have to understand that's how the abolitionist movement began. When we couldn't do any better, when we were not assimilated into the, into the larger society, when we were not integrated in, when we were not allowed, what we did was what was best for all of us. And that's how we got even a little tiny margin of improvement for the overall. And you see the persecution that has remained the entire time we've been in this country. And around the world, it has it's been pervasive in every country where we are located. Everywhere we try to go, we get kicked out, we get imprisoned. We get criminalized. Marginalized. Our lives do not matter. In our own home continent, the one that will hold nearly every other country on the planet within its borders, we are not truly welcome and not truly in control. Now, I don't want to go all Pan-African on you. But at some point, we got to get our heads out of our rectums and stop trying to figure out how to assimilate and how to get some money and how to buy up a bunch of stuff and how to take trips and how to drive new cars and how to get new suits and how to show up on time for work and pay these bills. And At some point, we need to be concerned about getting free. Is black autonomy anything anyone has ever considered is even possible? Or is that just over? My son has no hope. There's no hope for these children for real, for autonomy. Just forget that. That's out. Can we at least not be persecuted to the degree we are currently? Can we get that? Can we negotiate that much? Did you get that much out of the degree you earned that you can fight for us to at least scale it back a little bit? Because right now you're not getting nothing done. These cases that I wanted to talk about, and I'm ranting on and I'm going past the time I need to go. These cases that these people are actually making some moves. Sadly, I got to be the one to tell you. It ain't black lawyers doing it. It's poor white people getting caught up in this too, just like the 90% that you were seeing in Ferguson. 90% of this, 95% of that. 92% of this, the same stuff going on in Ferguson, and they proved by the DOJ was racially motivated. We need a lawsuit following up with the lawsuit that's already in place in Alabama. That's what we need is people to be paying attention to the legal precedent that's already being set. We need you to get on board, black lawyers, big head attorneys. We got some, we know some, and we love you. 
and we're going to fight with you and for you and whatever you need. And we're going to get you out there and give you whatever you need so we can get this done for everybody. But it, a one and two ain't no good numbers. Five ain't good numbers. That just ain't, that's just not getting ready to help. I mean, it's going to do something, but it is not nowhere near enough. The need is so pressing. This judicial correction services, private probation company collected money from an impoverished Alabamans by threatening them with jail when they fell behind on paying fines for traffic violations or other citations in the city of Clanton. The Southern Poverty Law Center filed a lawsuit, federal lawsuit, accusing JCS of violating federal racketeering laws. Plain and simple. Judicial Correction Services, a private probation company, collected money from impoverished Alabamans by threatening them with jail when they fell behind on paying fines for traffic violations and other citations in the city of, of Clanton, Alabama. SPLC Law Center filed a federal uh, lawsuit accusing JCS of violating federal racketeering laws. The lawsuit accuses JCS and local JCS manager Stephen Raymond of violating the Federal Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt, and Corrupt Organizations Act by extorting from probationers the monthly payments then include a fee for JCS. It also accuses these defendants in the city of Clanton for formalizing this relationship through an illegal contract that violates Alabama law prohibiting the charging of a probation fee in the city court. Finally, we find somebody is on the trail. Somebody is doing what we said needs to be done. We could see it. We're not attorneys, but we see somebody's on the trail. So now you can look to SPLC. Now you can look to Alabama. We can follow this case. We can see if they, we can get any kind of thing. And you see how they named not just the company JCS, but they also named the city of Clanton. And they also named the people that are in charge there who are bringing this mandate, establishing this relationship. Ferguson is in the same boat and can do the same thing. Kansas City can do the same thing. Where are you at? You can do the same thing. This is your homework for the weekend. If you're listening live, you hear the podcast today. It's Friday, March 20th. But whatever day you hear it afterward, if you, if you don't do it, who else is going to do it? Look into this. I will put the links on all of our social media, Twitter, Facebook, you know, whatever. I'll put all the stuff out there so you can look at it yourself. You've heard it from here. You hear it in this, in this, uh, what I'm talking about. Go to the SPLC, Southern Poverty Law Center website, Roxanne Reynolds, the Judicial Correction Services, Inc. Pretty easy to find. It's a legal precedent being set. They are suing as according to the RICO laws. We finally, thank you, God, got some kind of traction. This has been the Abolitionist Daily. This has been Johan and Elia, your host. Bear with me. We will get back into this after the weekend break. Peace to the abolitionists and death to these oppressors. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.